Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. And today's topic is financial literacy for young women in high schools across the United States. And we're joined by the founder and CEO, Maura Cunningham from Rock the Street, Wall Street. Maura, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. Just as background for our audience, we do pro bono podcasts for folks who we think are doing important work, right? We did a podcast with Jelani Fenton from Safari that does talent incubation for the insurance industry. We did a podcast with Dion Woods from the Dime program, who works with 11th and 12th grade youth on financial literacy. And you and I met at a 100 women's event hosted by our client, 91, and where you were kind enough to give me a t-shirt that said, Girls Rock Finance. And I took a picture of it pointing at my CFA certificate and got something like 4,000 views on LinkedIn. So thanks for wow. that. Thanks for that. I, I want to start this off the way we start them all. What was your hometown, your first job ever, not the fancy first job, and a fun fact? Oh, my gosh. Okay. All right. Uh, my hometown is the Bronx, New York. Very proud Bronxite. My first job was at a deli in the Bronx on East Tremont Avenue in Throgs Neck. I was behind the counter and I loved it. I worked on weekends and opened the store from like 6 a.m. till 4 p.m. I think my shift was. Cut a lot of deli meat and served a lot of people and really truly enjoyed it because you got to meet the locals. Absolutely, yeah. And um, you got to chat with um, a, uh, a whole range of people. And, you know, I haven't thought of this in God decades, but yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And then what was the last Fun part? fact. What's fun your fun? Fact. What's a fun fact? Oh, okay. I would say a fun fact is that most people don't know that I whitewater kayak. Nice. And I love it. Uh, I, I was born and raised in the Bronx and went to Wall Street. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But then I moved to Tennessee 20 years ago and I was... Um, fortunate enough to take up uh, whitewater kayaking about probably 12 years ago, maybe more. And we're a great state for whitewater kayaking, particularly down in the southeastern corner where the Okoe, the Nanahela, and the Hawassi rivers are. So I've become a real outdoor enthusiast in my uh, later life, including hiking and biking and all other things. Oh, that's cool. That's no, but that's a, that is a great. It's a great fun fact. We share we share a few a couple things. You're not only a first generation American, but you're a first generation college student, and I am as well. And that I think that's fueling your passion for for this project, Rock the Street, Wall Street. Can you tell us about it? I'd be delighted. So you're right. I, you know, coming from the neighborhood that I came from and the Bronx too, most of our parents were off the boat, as they would say. So our enclave was mostly Italian, Irish, German, and then a, a little bit at the time Hispanic, uh, mostly Puerto Rico. 
Puerto Rican coming in. And so we were, uh, again, our parents had no clue about life in America. And other than, you know, what our kids were bringing home from school, <laughs> but they knew that they wanted a better life for themselves and their, their, their kids. So they came to the, to, they came to the United States uh, for that uh, reason. So my father literally came to America with nothing more than pretty much the shirt off his back, the shirt on his back, and then saved enough money to send for my mother to come over uh, for passage for her to come over. And so she came over about three years later. So it took about three years for him to save up the money. And so I was fortunate enough to go to uh, Catholic schools um, there in the Bronx. And my father, you know, he worked three jobs um, and he would, quite frankly, uh, in between the jobs, which were taxi driver, bartender and soda jerk, as they called them, he would sleep at movie theaters in Manhattan in between the jobs. He wouldn't be able to even come home. Wow. Um, and so um, subsequently, though, you know, he w- he made his way up to, I don't know if there is such a thing, but lead bartender and uh, at a very well-known pub in Manhattan that uh, he actually, this, they named the street after him on 57th Street and, and um, uh, York Place. Um, and among many patrons are were Mike Bloomberg. Um, oh, wow. So- yeah, so I mean, the uh, blue bloods uh, and all of a sudden place would come. Uh, so he made his way up, but um, but but he was again just the bartender, was not the owner. In any event, I can see he knew nothing about finance, and thankfully though, my mother knew how to keep a checkbook, and so it was my mother who kept the checkbook, and that's all that they knew. They really had no idea how to invest, and no one really in our neighborhood knew how to do any of that. So, and then I was fortunate enough to be paired up with some young women also in school who were very, very, very bright and we all had careers. And then they just throw up their hands when it came to investing. <laughs> like, you can do this. I mean, this is nothing more than sixth grade math, right? So, but they would just throw up their hands at it. And like, there's a problem here. We got a real problem. And then when I got to Wall Street, um, and and saw that I was all, the only usually producing female in the office. I thought, wow, this is this there's something wrong here. So I was fortunate enough to retire at an early age. I retired about 13 years ago, and then um, I traded options. I traded options for my own account. And then after three years of doing that, though, I thought there had to be more to life than this. So I went back to school. And got my master's in civic leadership, thinking I was going to go into public administration. And I did my thesis on girls and math and how we lose them at age nine in the United States. Some would say as early as age six in the United States. And and this is, we don't have this problem in China, Russia, India, Asian countries, and even in Eastern European countries. And so this is clearly a cultural issue, not a capability issue. So I want the girls back. So we are addressing this in the high schools where they begin to have a better appreciation for money. We did launch originally in in uh, at the nine year old age, but we could find that they really had no concept of money. So we bumped it up to the high school level for that reason. And then Eureka, I mean, we we found this um, Rock the Street Wall Street over ten years ago. We're celebrating our tenth anniversary actually this year. Congratulations! And thank you. 
And um, we're now in 62 high schools in the United States, in 34 cities, I should say, across the United States, Canada. And we just launched in the UK. Good for you. Uh, this past fall, yeah. Good for you. So what are we doing wrong losing girls at nine in math? I mean, my background is I taught for a number of years. I found real talent, not only with female students, but underrepresented groups that you see not a lot of on, on the street. What are we doing wrong? So the, it's a great question. The research, I'll tell you what the research says. So, and I, and I believe it absolutely to be true. So uh, here's, here's the result first. Let me tell you what the result is. Uh, so I, in my college math class, was the only female in my math class of 34 men and me. And we won't say how many years ago, but it was quite a few years ago. Let's say it was, I don't know, two and a half, three decades ago. And fast forward, my chief operating officer, who is Ashley Leftwich, she's a generation younger than me. She was on a much bigger college campus than me. She was at the University of Georgia, 40,000 students, 40,000 students. She was the only female in her math class. And so it, this is the silent killer as to whether there aren't more women in STEM. And so we are bringing the M of STEM to light. We're letting it have the light of day. No one is talking about this. You mostly hear about the T and E, tech and engineering. Well, guess what? You got to get them into math in order to get to T and E. Absolutely. So, so it starts very young, Stuart. So the research shows that if mom and dad have a boy and a girl, and if mom and dad have stereotypical roles, mom and dad are still suggesting to the daughter study dance and literature, and to the son, study math and science. And that's still happening, still very pervasive. Then the girl gets to elementary schools, uh, elementary school age, where 90, 90% of the uh, elementary school teachers are female who have little to no certification in math. And so they will actually say, I hate math. I can't do math, or they display anxiety in doing math. And the University of Chicago has done 12-year longitudinal studies on this, and they've sliced it and diced it a number of different ways. This affects the girls in the classrooms, but not the boys in the classrooms. And so the girls begin to think that it's societally acceptable for them to opt out of math. Now the girl gets to middle school. In middle school, she hears the girls actually saying, we can't do math. I don't have to know math, you know. And so, again, they think it's societally acceptable for them to not know math, which is not true in those other cultures whatsoever. They are pushed on math. Then the girl gets to high school. So now she's like heard this for like 10 years, a decade of we don't have to know math. We can't do math. Why even bother? Right. And she so might now, be behind already. Right. 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 Yeah. Too. So now she's in high school and even more so the girls are saying, we don't have to do math. I actually heard it said, our boyfriends will do it for us. I'm not kidding. I've actually heard this and I've had to address this firsthand. And so no wonder why there are only one in 10 women in the finance and economics classes still today. And so, you know, I've asked the industry when I first got this launch 10 years ago, what is the definition of insanity? 
doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the industry keeps thinking that they can recruit women and underserved populations, minorities, at college. Well, you know what? You will never, ever broaden the pipeline if you wait until they get to college because they've already opted out. They don't even know what we exist. They don't want it. They have no clue that this is something they can do. As I mentioned earlier, it's nothing more than sixth grade math for the most part. You know, 98% of us in the profession. I know we have our algos and quants. We're fully aware of them. Some of them sponsor us, fully aware. But 98% of us only have to know sixth grade math. And so if you tell them that, then they're like, oh, okay, I can do this. And so you have to, you must catch them at an earlier age. You cannot wait until they get to college. And that's amazing to me. And it makes perfect sense, right? My daughter right now is 17 and she has math anxiety. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you say that because it really resonates with me. I'm sure she'll kill me for mentioning her on this podcast, but nevertheless. Well, Stuart, <laughs> the best thing for you to do is intervene. It, it, this, again, the research shows if mom or dad, either one, intervenes and says, here's why you're thinking this, because you're hearing it all around you among your friends. You really think that, but the reality is they score just as well as, and even higher than the boys. But they the, socially, they're being told because the teachers don't know math, and I, I'm married to a teacher, so please understand, I have the greatest respect for teachers, the greatest respect. But eight, let's get to, let's get to this point. 80%, 80, 80% of the teachers self-report, self-report that they are, they're not capable, and what's the word, competent, that they don't feel competent to teach financial literacy, 80%, which is criminal in my mind's eye. But please go to your, go to your daughter now, right? She's 17 and say, Hey, you know, where are you getting this impression from? And, and why do you think that's true? Because she's hearing it among her friends and she may have heard it from her teachers as well. And then get involved with her teachers and say, this is a problem. What are you doing about it to counteract that socialization? Thank you. That's great advice. So you have female financiers that volunteer for Rock the Street, Wall Street. Can you talk a little bit about what's resonating with those folks that are volunteering with you? I would say the entire program, to be frank. I mean, I was in a silo my entire career, you know, because I was the only female, right? Usually in my department or in my office. So we, we were siloed off to be honest. I mean, truly, we were in silos because there were not many of us. And I was consistently the only female. So when I launched this, speaking of silos, I I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to cross my fingers and let's see what happens. And boom, you know, I launched it and wow, I was absolutely floored by how many women reached out to be volunteers. I was absolutely floored. So clearly we've hit something here. In addition to the volunteers, just so you you have a feeling for this, there are over 100 additional cities that want our program. Over 100. And that is not just in the United States. We're getting interest in, where we're in London now, but also Edinburgh, Dublin, Paris, Singapore, Sydney, and Mexico City. So we can't meet the demand. But back to the volunteers. 
So it's a legacy issue, Stuart, in my humble opinion, because we don't see ourselves, right? We don't see ourselves in upper management and we don't see ourselves in the positions of power. And so what they want to do is they want to grab their younger selves and say, hey, you can do this. And they want to be the ones that sponsor them, that mentor them to come into the profession. And we create that social capital for these students, 78% of whom are BIPOC, Black and Indigenous people of color, 44% are from low-income families. Now, these girls would never, ever have these opportunities before. Now we're giving them that hand to bring them up and in to the profession. And and for those girls who choose not to come into the profession, we are making them not only financially literate, but also investment literate. It's so important. I mean, Dion Woods made this point. If paying the electric bill and the gas bill is a challenge every month, financial instruments aren't a topic of conversation around the dinner table, right? And that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. You're doing really solid work here. And I I want to talk about how you're funded and how, I mean, our audience is made up of insurance companies and asset management firms for the most part. And asset management firms are a way that you get funded. So can you talk a little bit about your business model and how, and how people can help? Because when you've got 100 cities, you're in 60-odd cities now, you've got 100 cities that are interested in, in joining you and you need resources to get there, how do we get that done? Thank you for asking the question, Stuart. And we are very fortunate in that we have over 50 corporate sponsors. And just so you have a feel, if you mentioned the asset managers, we have over the 50, 52, I think it is the share of the 52, 25 are asset managers. Insurance companies, we have about, I believe it's one, two, three, We have three, if not four, insurance companies. And so the insurance companies include AIG, now Corbridge on our end, on their end, actually, but the ones we're we're relating with now are Corbridge Principal, State Farm, and I know we have some others in the the hopper. But again, the asset, Aon, by the way, too. And so, and I think we put them under asset management on that side. But in any event, the way that they can get involved is there's a couple different ways. If they want to get their employees involved along and into their community, then they would sponsor a school. So we are, we are a year-long program. We're not a one and done. We go back every year and we have four components to the program. One is a series of fall workshops that are held at the high school. The second is a, what we call a Wall Street Experience field trip, which is held usually before Thanksgiving. And then the third component is the uh, mentor pairing, which happens in the spring. And then the fourth component is the vocational career platform. So it's a year-long program, and uh, they can deploy, the employers can deploy their diversity, equity, and inclusion teams, members of their groups, such as a Black ERG, Employee Resource Group, Hispanic ERG, or LBGTQ, DEI, Diverse, Equity, and Inclusion, or a women's group any of those four. And we see that happening with each of our sponsors that do sponsor a local high school. We would ask that they consider that in cities where they have a lot of employees so that we would be pulling from their pool of employees as volunteers. So, and where our staff would be happy to talk to them further about the particulars of the program and so forth. And we recruit 
by component. So even though it sounds like it's a long program for your employees, we recruit by component, meaning each component is a different recruitment. The other way that they can get involved with us uh, is to sponsor our vocational career platform, which is the newest component and the fourth component, fourth program we call it, which is we did a, a soft launch in August of 21. And it was kind of like build it and they will come. We were extremely, again, thrilled with the response that the industry gave us. So we only mentioned it to our current sponsors uh, that we were in launching this internal, what we call internship and job portal, the IJP. And within about two months, we had over 267 listings of internships and entry-level positions listed from our sponsors. So it was a wonderful- That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a wonderful, unbelievable response. Uh, so much so that we created the fourth component, which is the vocational and career platform, which includes other things. It sees our girls past high school. So as we have grown organically for the last 10 years, we now, and we track our students, by the way, our girls are now in college and they're saying to us, you know, we need your help in college now because we are, you know, getting in at the age of looking for internships and looking for entry-level positions. So very organically, we have grown this VCP. So now we're into our second year and we need funding to grow that portion of the program which is uh, absolutely wonderful because we're democratizing these opportunities that would have gone on previous to us, would have gone certainly only to the elite schools, right? Because mom or dad is in the business, but we are democratizing that. And so clearly the industry is seeing us as the go-to place for emerging diverse female talent. And, you know, my clients and the folks I talk to want to grow, they want a more diverse workforce but I don't think a lot of them, to your point earlier about doing the same thing, expecting different results, they've got to look for different avenues to hire, right? So it's tremendous to know that you're one of those avenues. Kind of on the back end here, what are your future plans? I will say this, I will put up, we will make sure that we put up the contact information to reach your team for if anybody's interested in in working with you. But I love how ambitious you are, and I can't wait to hear the answer to this question. What are your plans for Rock the Street, Wall Street? It's uh, it's interesting you said that, ambitious, <laughs> because, you know, as again, you know, having been in the silo for so long, we're, we're just thrilled with uh, the response. And our plan is to get to the majority of the cities that have interest, because we've clearly demonstrated that we're plug and play now in any city. And so the plan is to continue to plug and play within the United States, and then also to continue to grow our presence in the money-centered cities, such as London, such as uh, in Mexico, Mexico City, Singapore, uh, Sydney, Australia, and other, uh, there's another city in, in Australia as well. And then London, of course, Edinburgh, Manchester, and so on, Paris, um, and then uh, either Munich or somewhere else in Germany. But, you know, it, it, it's a function of sponsors and, of course, the women. So most of what the growth has been, I would say, easily 
more than 90%, if not 95%, it has been driven by the women. So it's kudos to them rather than me, as far as the growth of uh, our footprint. I'm just a shepherd as far as shepherding the program, but clearly our boots on the ground are the women. That's fantastic. So I'm keen to get your answer to this question. We ask this to our podcast guests, but in your case, the answer is going to be particularly interesting. (laughs) I want to take you back to your undergraduate institution when they handed you that diploma and having gone down the path that you've chosen, what would you tell your 21 year old self? What advice would you give yourself? Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Wow. That's a good one. From a career perspective. Yeah. Just from any perspective. I mean, I, you've talked about so many aspects of, why we struggle to get a more diverse workforce. And you had mentioned earlier that some of your female financiers look at this as an opportunity to go back and and grab their 21-year-old selves by the shoulders and, and say, hey, you know, do this. You know, there's so many women, young women. I mean, I've had a multitude of women who did really well in my finance class, and I've reached out and I haven't gotten nearly the response, right? And it's like, I want women to know in underrepresented groups as well, that there's a really bright future in the financial services community, the insurance industry, and so forth. What would you tell a 21-year-old Maura Cunningham today? Well, I always bit off more than I could chew. (laughs) I can can relate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always bit off more than I can chew. I was unafraid of being the squeaky wheel. I can't tell you how many times I was told I was the squeaky wheel. And I would say, look, in in this environment, what do you expect me to be? Okay, because if I don't speak up, you're not not handing it to me. I know that, right? So what would I tell my 21-year-old self? I took on risk. I will say most women won't take on risk. I interviewed, speaking of interviews, a woman who is a professor at a university up in the St. Paul, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and she's been teaching there for over 30 years, graduate school of finance. And she said to me that consistently, these women who are just as bright, just as capable as the men want a safe, cushy job rather than become a portfolio manager. And they think that becoming a portfolio manager is too much risk. When in reality, as you know, the men are, you know, it's just a function of, you know, doing it and you have the tools to do it and you you just have to kind of beat the odds and step up and do it where they would be handsomely compensated. But instead they take the, the, the less riskier positions and of course are then less compensated for that. So I would say, and again, I did take on risk. I was totally, you know, full uh, commission, no, no, no salary probably after the age of 28 or thereabouts. So, I would tell myself, though, to to try to, if it were me telling myself, I would probably try to help other women sooner. I would probably try to help other women sooner. You know, as as you well know in this career, you know, you're so fast, you, you know, you got to get on track and stay there, right? And But there were so few women that were like me, you know, and it was obvious, you know, there'd be 400 men at a conference and maybe eight of us women. It was always the same eight. 
and, you know, maybe approach other women and encourage them to, you know, look differently at the profession and to be able to take risk. And, you know, why are you, why are you so afraid of risk? You know, but I think that's a cultural thing. Again, they don't understand what they don't, you know, they don't know what they don't know. So maybe introduce them sooner to the concept of risk. And I should have probably taken more time to share that with other women that may have been a high potential or even mediocre potential like the men. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, I, I get that. I mean, I, 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 would, I want to get you, I, I think that's great advice. And I'd, I'd like to introduce you. I want to make, you know, our audience aware of this as well, but there's a group called IWIN, which is the Insurance Women's Investment Network that's over 600 members. And that's somebody that I'd love to network you with. They do a phenomenal job. Uh, Sarah Marshock at, at Wellington and is who we work with most closely there. And But there are a number of women on both the uh, buy and sell side at very senior levels. And, you know, we partner with them with CFA institutes doing events and, and so forth. And we want to do more there. But I I do think that women are willing to help each other in a way that sometimes guys aren't, right? And I think it's really important to network. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you was to increase awareness of what you're doing. It's phenomenal work. You're making a huge impact, a great difference and I, I just couldn't wish you more success. I just uh, very happy to have you on. And, and thanks for taking the time to really walk us through what you're up to at Rock the Street, Wall Street. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we would love to get connected with IWIN. I would really love to meet those women and um, share our story as well. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to be on this. And I, I, I can't thank you enough, Stuart. Those were good questions. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, thanks for being on. Maura Cunningham, founder and CEO of Rock the Street, Wall Street, a financial and investment literacy program designed to bring both gender and racial equity to financial markets and spark the interest of a diverse population of high school girls into careers in finance. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your ideas for podcasts. Please drop me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. <laughs>